Why should we value somebody with a kind of middle ranking degree? Why should we value them more than somebody who works as a technician in a factory? I want the prestige and award to be to be spread more evenly across these these clusters of aptitude. Welcome to Think Atlantic, a series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategic Division, in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Mazurg, and I wish you a very and healthy new year with the hope that 2021 will give us better news all around than 2020, of course. We actually are in for a treat to start this year because, as promised, my first guest of 2021 is no other than David Goodhart, and he's back to discuss his new book, Head and Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. David was actually our first ever guest on this show back in January last year, and we are so glad to have him back for the start of season two of Think Atlantic. If you missed the episode last year, or if you have lived on another planet for the past few years, let me introduce you to David Goodhart. David is a a British journalist, think tanker, and author. Uh, He is the head of Demography, Immigration, and Integration Unit at the London-based think tank Policy Exchange. He worked for the Financial Times for 12 years before founding Prospect Magazine in 1995. And his previous book, The Road to Somewhere, was a Sunday Times bestseller and the subject of our last show. But as I said, the topic of today will be his new book, published in September last year, Head and Heart, and which was translated in at least two other languages, German and French. David, thanks for joining us once again today. Happy New Year and welcome back to the show. Happy New Year to you, and uh, I'm very glad to be back on the show. David, let's jump straight into your book and its main topic, which the title explains a little bit, but it does not give it away entirely. So Head and Heart is about intelligence. And what you suggest is that in the West in general, and Britain and America in particular, there is a society suffers from a, a condition that you describe as peak head, where cognitive achievement, so cognitive intelligence, acts too much as a sorting mechanism in society. In other words, too much attention has been given to brainy intellectual intelligence, so to speak, and we have devalued technical, practical abilities, which is hand, and social and empathy skills, which is heart, while alienating and demoralizing the people who do these jobs that require all these qualities. You also argue that head has taken too much space in our measuring of success, both professional, financial, and most importantly, perhaps respect. Uh, I'm quoting you here on page four, smart people have become too powerful, which is you know, pretty powerful statement, but I guess you also add insult to injury for the head or for, for, for the brainy people when you, you argue that uh, experts have not exactly covered themselves with glory in the past 20 years. Now, I find this, to be honest, pretty true, but it's also quite provocative. So I would like to invite you to explain your thesis in a bit more detail right now. And an additional question, do you feel that the COVID-19 crisis has proven you right? Okay, well, um, a lot of um, a lot of material there. So this book is in some ways got rather a simple thesis. It's in the title, Head, Hand, Heart, that, uh, as you say, we've allocated, particularly in the last 30 or 40 years, you could say this is something that goes back kind of thousands of years, the, the way in which, you know, reason, ideas have, have been acquired a certain sort of 
purity, a certain sort of prestige associated with the idea of sort of free floating, whereas the body is, is kind of the source of all corruption and sin. Um, you know, it goes back to classical times, reinforced by Christianity, you might say. But in the last 30 or 40 years, there's no question that we've seen a sort of shift in what it is that modern societies value. And that was, in some ways, perfectly rational, that it should be that the cluster of aptitudes associated with cognitive ability, associated with the manipulation of data and information, have attracted a disproportionate amount of prestige and reward. Uh, and that's inevitably drawn away prestige and reward from manual technical craft occupations, caring occupations, as you say. And that has been uh, obviously related to the expansion of higher education, the emergence of the knowledge economy that we started talking about in the 1980s. And there was a big demand for more for people with who were cognitively trained. And that was perfectly rational. But I think we've now reached um, what I call peak head. Peak head is the sort of turning point. I mean, the the over-rewarding of this one cluster of human abilities has has been the story of the last 30, 40 years. And I think it's a very big part of the story behind the mass political alienation that we've seen expressed in things like the Brexit vote, the election of Donald Trump in 2016, the fact that Donald Trump uh, achieved, what, 73 million votes in, in the recent election despite losing. I think this is kind of the, you know, it's one of the elephants in the room. And this book, Head, Hand, Heart, is in some ways a kind of part two of my earlier book that you referred to, The Road to Somewhere, where I talked about the value divides, the people who see the world from anywhere, the people who see the world from somewhere, uh, the anywhere as being the, the kind of 25, 30% of the population, the kind of mass elite, if you like, of graduate, people who tend to value mobility and openness and autonomy and are broadly comfortable in the with rapid changes of the modern world. And against them, you have the, the more rooted somewheres who prioritise security and familiarity more and tend to derive their identities from place and group and therefore find rapid change more disorientating. I mean, this, this is sort of, as, it, as I say, so part two of the Road to Somewhere thesis in some ways burrows down deeper into the into educational stratification, the whole question of meritocracy. And, and as I say, this belief that the cognitively blessed, and they're not even necessarily more blessed than many of the people not doing cognitive functions, but the, you know, those who are cognitively credentialised are somehow contributing more and maybe in, even in some ways sort of better people than the run-of-the-mill people who are still doing um, you know, either basic manual jobs or the kind of middling technical jobs or indeed the, the caring jobs. David, the essential jobs that we've been talking about for the past year, right? With, well, of course, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean there, there, is a, there is a big a pandemic aspect to this, which I'll come on to in a moment. But I mean, just to, just to stress, this is, it's not just about the labour market. It's not just about uh, the fact that um, I don't know, someone in a cognitively credentialised job in a, I don't know, in a, in a law firm, in a, um, you know, someone who's an account manager, a junior account manager in a PR firm, a financial PR firm in the city of London. Of course, it's slightly unfair, I suppose, to associate with finance because all jobs associated with finance tend to be better paid than most. But, you know, compare the, the kind of soft skills and cognitive skills required of a PR account manager with someone who drives a bus through central London every day. And 
the account manager is probably, you know, e even at the age of 25, is likely to be paid a substantial premium on somebody, you know, a middle-aged bus driver. And, you know, and, you know there, there are reasons for that, but I think there are reasons that we may also want to hold up to the light and ask questions about. And I, and I think it's not, you know, it's not, in, it's not good enough to just say, oh, you know, these, this is what the market has decided. The market, behind the market, stands human beings and human preferences and priorities. If you look at the business plans of most big corporations, they've changed dramatically in the last 20 or 30 years when it comes to issues like the environment or gender equality. So, so you know, the, the market and political preferences are in a constantly sort of intertwining relationship. But, but as I say, this is not just about the labour market. It's about the, uh, the whole idea of what it is to lead a successful life. And I think we've produced too narrow a vision of what it is to lead a successful life. It is essentially to, to do well at school, to go to a more or less good university, to have a more or less successful professional career. And that's fine. I and mean, the people that do that should get their should get the appropriate reward. Many of those jobs are very in themselves very rewarding already. But too much of the idea of, as I say, what it is to be a to be a good person, to be a successful person, has has narrowed. I think we had a, a much broader idea of what it was forty or fifty years ago. And moreover, there is just one ladder up into this zone of safety and success. Uh, there is one ladder, and it is the modern university. And because so many of us have been repeatedly told by our teachers, by the wider culture, but you know that it's not surprising that every, pretty well everybody's parents want them to climb that ladder into into higher education. But part of my argument is that this has now become hugely dysfunctional. We're overproducing graduates for jobs that are no longer there. Um, as I said earlier, there was a time when this was perfectly sensible. When we had um, in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you had big expansion of welfare states in Europe, which meant a lot of professional jobs. Uh, it meant you know more teachers, it meant more academics, it meant more doctors, it meant all all the professions associated with medicine as the as our health services and and welfare services expanded. And as I say, it was also the time of the knowledge economy of of the kind of um, you know many of the sort of basic manufacturing functions you know, disappearing to other countries or just being phased out completely. So it, it it seemed logical. Now we've reached the point where it's become dysfunctional that we are overproducing graduates. You know this is even before artificial intelligence has come in and destroyed a lot of the middling and lower cognitive jobs. A lot of the people that are being churned out by universities today into kind of middle status jobs in law, accountancy, medicine, whatever, administration. These jobs are simply not going to be there in another five or ten years. Meanwhile, we have huge, particularly in America and the US, but, but also in some parts of, of Europe, we have huge shortages of the middle, you know, the so-called missing middle in skills, the kind of higher technical functions. That, you know, the, the, the people that we've got a lot of kit in our modern societies that, lead, that need maintaining you know, what I call the kind of maintenance classes, you know, as well as there, there will always be an irreducible number of low-skilled jobs that we need being done. You know, we need cleaners, we need people to deliver parcels, we need really, you know, lots of very basic driving jobs and so on will always be needed. We will we, we'll also need a huge money, as it were, the kind of next sort of rung up the ladder, the kind of the higher technical uh, jobs, the kind of the maintenance jobs that require a, don't necessarily require a higher education, but require the kind of skills that skilled trades have 
historically required electricians plumbers and so on i mean th th these are not negligible skills at all so you know we've got a crisis of recruitment in those areas we've got an even bigger crisis of recruitment in the in the heart area um that's been partly revealed by the pandemic that you know we have a huge recruitment crisis in nursing in the nhs in the uk and even an even bigger one in the the cinderella service which is the uh, old people's homes uh, they have one third of their staff leave every year at the average old people's home in the uk so we have a massive problem there and so we're this is this my point is this is going to have to change when i started writing this the head hand heart i was sort of thinking this is rather a kind of rather idealistic notion that we can that we can um, more fairly distribute status across these clusters of of skills and aptitudes but the more i researched the more i realized that this is kind of happening anyway indeed it's already happening I mean, you're seeing increasing pay in a lot of basic jobs and even more so in those in the missing middle area of the kind of technician type skills. And um, I think you are going to see in the short term, the pandemic means that the universities are on automatic pilot. A lot of kids, because of the uncertainties in the labour market, because the pandemic are, are still going to university, probably, probably more even than, than in the last couple of years. We've probably got more people in the UK anyway going to university this year than, than ever before. But this is going to go into reverse, I think, in the next few years. And I think, I mean, just, just to finish on the pandemic point here, I do think the pandemic has reinforced some of this argument. I mean, as, 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 you, as you said just then, um, the people that we were applauding, apart from the, um, I mean, a lot of the people we were applauding in the, in the hospital sector are already relatively high status and high paid doctors and, and even the nurses. But a, little bit, a lot of the, the other people that we were clapping were the, the people who maintain what I call the kind of hidden wiring of our lives, you know, the, the van drivers, the, the cleaners, the refuse collectors, the, the people that stack shelves in supermarkets. Um, and these job, many of these jobs have been kind of invisible to us before. Um, and I think they became more visible. And, we, and, and obviously the vast majority of these jobs are done by non-graduates, um, often on relatively low pay. Um, I mean, and you know, I mean, we've got to be realistic about this. I mean, you know, someone who stacks shelves in a supermarket is never going to earn a king's ransom, but they can be, you know, and actually, they, you know, we we do have relatively high minimum wages in these country in this country, and um, you know, they, they could be a little bit higher, and I suspect they will be over the coming years. But it's not just about pay. I mean, it's about, as I said earlier, it's about being recognised as doing a useful job. And I think that will stay, I think, after the pandemic has faded away. I think we will continue to have a, a sense of interconnection uh, and a sense of the importance of everybody in this chain, even if they're doing jobs that are relatively poorly paid. Uh, and I think that that is a healthy thing. I mean, I, you know, I do not for a moment want to give the impression that this book is hostile to high intelligence. Um, the pandemic, I think, has, has sort of shown... Um, well, it's shown the kind of higher cognitive intelligences at their best and their worst. I mean, I think, you know, we, but, but leaving that aside, I mean, clearly, you know, we as a species need high intelligence as never before. We need clever people working in teams to come up with a, with a vaccine for COVID, which happily seems they have done. Uh, we need clever people to come up with ways of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and, and various other, various other technical fixes that we're going to need in the coming years. So, uh, you know, in, in, the, in science and in technology and medicine, we need really clever people um, as, as never before. Mm. But we do not need, uh, as I was saying, we do not need a lot of the, the sort of cognitive bureaucracy, um, these kind of middle and lower level cognitive jobs that have sort of grown up 
uh, and these people, you know, we need people, we need really clever people at the, at the top of many of these professions to produce new knowledge. Um, but the vast majority of people who are cognitively, you know, these days, you know, about a third of the adult population in most of our countries uh, are, are now graduates. Um, it's more than that for the, it's getting on for half of the um, under 30s. Uh, but the vast majority of these people are not producing new knowledge. Um, indeed, they're probably no more able. Many of them, I mean, the vast majority of us are in the middle of the IQ bell curve, if you if you attach importance to that. And I mean, it's clearly measuring something. Um, but, you know, m- many people doing cognitive jobs are no more able than people doing non-cognitive jobs. They're probably no more able than their, their non-graduate parents. Indeed, they may well be doing rather similar kind of job. And I do think, f- final point perhaps here, is that a lot of the a lot of the kind of emotional outbursts we've seen in politics in recent times, something like the, the kind of rather unlikely emergence of socialism in the United States, the Bernie Sanders movement, um, the Jeremy Corbyn movement, the Momentum movement here, possibly even some aspects of the BLM movement, um, perhaps less so in America, but, but here and in continental Europe, I think has been driven at least in part by graduate, young graduates who have done what they think they were asked to do they've worked hard and they've done well in their exams and they've gone to good universities they've come out and they're expecting high status high paid professional employment and they are not receiving and many of them are not receiving it and that is creating a crisis of disappointed expectations um, amongst these educated people and um and this is merely going to get worse um uh, because as i as i was saying earlier the proportion of jobs in the in the kind of higher kind of higher professional jobs is static at the moment it's not rising so much of our public policy is based on the assumption that we will have an ever-expanding number of professional and higher professional jobs Um, our our social mobility policy is based on that assumption our education policy even to some extent our productivity policy because these people are supposed to be super productive of course they're not um, except for except for those that are producing new knowledge um, but our, so much of our public policy is based around the false assumption that these kinds of jobs are growing. They're not. They're, they're going to be shrinking, in fact, in, in the years to come. So we, we just we need to adapt to that. There will still be lots of skilled jobs, but they, but they won't, you know, like a dementia nurse. Uh, and, and many of these jobs will, of course, combine head and hand or head and heart. I mean, a dementia nurse is a classic, a classic example. Many dementia nurses will be graduates. Uh, that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But it will also require, to be a good dementia nurse, you will require lots of other aptitudes that, that, that you cannot learn from books at a university. David, on, on this particular uh, thing, in some ways, you know, one could argue that you, you are uh, what could accuse you of of going against the democratization of of cognitive elitism, so to speak? That uh, basically you're trying to to bring back a new uh, you know a new elitism, which is you know which goes against the trends that we'd seen at, at least until the 90s of uh, uh, of democratization of higher education and, uh, and, and and all that. Do you take that criticism, or do you think it's no? It's- no, I mean it's quite the opposite. What I'm saying is that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is true. I mean, when I went to university, only about 10% of school leavers did. And so now that 30 or 40% of school leavers go to university, that does represent a kind of democratization of the elite. But my point is that 
that that elite or the you know particularly the the kind of middle and lower levels of that elite are sort of they're sort of piggybacking uh, on the deserved prestige and reward of the kind of higher levels of the of the kind of cognitive elite, and they're thereby kind of sort of stealing prestige and reward from these other clusters of aptitude. So, I mean, why should we value somebody with a kind of middle-ranking degree? Why should we value them more than somebody who works as a technician in a factory? I want prestige and reward to be to be spread more evenly across these these clusters of aptitude. Um, I mean, it, it's it's so topsy-turvy to to encourage everybody to do to move into this kind of one narrow field of the of the, of the co- cognitively credentialized. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could say, you know, if you just look at that slice, then it's better to have 30% or 40% of people joining this group than, than just 10%. But, I mean, apart from anything else, you enormously, I mean, I would like the the kind of cognitive and academic sector to be more elitist in some ways. I mean, you because you inevitably get a dilution. And as I say, the, the people that are going through, the, I mean, I mean, apart from anything else, the truth is that higher education in most of our societies has been completely monopolised by the middle and upper middle classes. The, the expansion of higher education has slowed down social mobility. It has not increased social mobility. It's just it's shoved all the social mobility up this one cognitive ladder. I'm going to take this uh, this statement that you just made as a, as a sort of start for 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 another another part of the conversation that I'd like us to have because I think this is you know one of the things that I find interesting within the, the general theory that you have a couple of of directions that you take within within head and heart but that I think are, are worthy of of a specific conversation. One of them is the the crisis of meritocracy that I think you have pointed out uh, very well in, uh, in 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 the book and. Uh, uh, you write, page 79 of Head and Heart, that a, a fair, I quote, a fair cognitive meritocracy is almost as hard to achieve as a fair hereditary ruling class because it is so easy to pass on cognitive advantage through education, upbringing, and genes. Now, I find it you know, difficult to argue against because the reality is this that we see today is more and more sons of or daughters of, basically following up in the steps of their parents, the footsteps of their parents in the Ivy League universities in America, in the Grands Ecoles in France, in Oxbridge, in Britain and other. And, and basically, you know, they, they, they go to these schools and then basically they, they, they follow in the footsteps of their parents in the corridors of the establishment. Now, there has long been problems with meritocracy becoming more hereditary after long periods of peace. I think that's something that you see pretty much in every society. But but you suggest that this has become a major problem precisely because the only way to reach the elites now is by building up cognitive skills that are themselves so easily passed on through the family by genes, by uh, education, etc., etc. Obviously, you know, as, as we discussed, you're, you're not saying, you know, we need to be more, you know, we need to go back to an aristocratic model or, or anything like that. But how do we answer? Because we've talked a lot about the problem, but let's try to think a little bit about the, the answers. How do we answer? What can be the answer to this tendency to elite ossification? And uh, if it is possible to, to build something over time without revolution, how do we build a new human, more humane form of meritocracy? Yeah, well, I mean, there there are two sort of separate but overlapping criticisms of meritocracy. I mean, we've we've suddenly uh, we've had all these books, and I guess my book is one of them. 
criticising meritocracy, going back in many ways to the Michael Young argument of the late 1950s, the man who coined the phrase in his book, The Rise of the Meritocracy. I mean, he was a he was a pretty old-fashioned egalitarian socialist, and he didn't like meritocracy um, because he felt that you know brains were inherited in the same way that that wealth was inherited, and that, that any over rewarding of of one group of people was inherently wrong um, on on socialist grounds. The modern critique, I mean, people like Michael Sandel, the tyranny of merit, the um, Daniel Markovitz, the meritocracy trap. A lot of these books have been coming out of America, and it's kind of in a way it's it's easy to see why, because meritocracy has become the kind of legitimating philosophy of the great inequality of the last 30 or 40 years. Um, so, you know, people on the left, I mean, the meritocracy, when it kind of emerged as a political idea, um, although it, its original form was as a critique uh, on the part of a British socialist in the, in the late 50s, but it, when it kind of re-emerged in, in, the, in the late 20th century, in the 80s, 90s, I think it was... It, was people like the New Democrats and New Labour took it up as a sort of equality of opportunity alternative to to full-blooded socialism. Um, so it was sort of taken up by the centre-left, but it's now been, it, the centre-left is now kind of turned against it, I think partly because it's seen as being part of the legitimation of, 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 the, great, of the great inequality. But and, and, and as you were implying, I mean, the fact that the, the meritocracy is insufficiently meritocratic is obviously one critique and and you can see you know i think michael sandel points out that, that there are more people from the top one percent of the u.s income spectrum at uh, ivy league universities than from the whole of the bottom 50 percent um unless you believe that we've already you know there's already been the kind of genetic shuffling of society so that 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 that, that one percent as it were deserves their um their success um, because they're so much cleverer than the rest, then uh, unless you believe that, then obviously, as you say, it, it's an example of meritocracy sort of stiffening and turning into olig- oligarchy in a way. There's an American philosopher, I can't remember his name, who's sort of saying, well, of course, at some level, it's sort of commonsensical. You want the cleverest people to be running your society or the most important institutions in your society. Uh, yeah, but that's fine, but you wait until... The clever people's children are also running your society, and the clever people's children's children <laughs> are still running your society. Um, you know that's that is uh, when you know you get a build up of resentment. But of course, but the other critique of meritocracy, of course, is is that even if you could have a fair meritocracy, I mean, I think you and I agree that in free societies in which parents are able to hand on their privileges to their children, and Parents will always find ways of doing that in free societies. You don't need private schools to do that. There are all sorts of other ways to do it. Uh, meritocracy will always be very limited and flawed. I mean, you should still strive for it in public policy. It's still a kind of worthwhile goal up to a point. But the other critique is to say that actually, as, an, as a society ideal, it isn't great guns either. The idea that you turn society into a competition, that the most able people win and everybody else feels like failures, you know, does not sound like a great idea in democratic, quasi-egalitarian societies like ours today. No, just society equality, right? Exactly. We, we need other... I'm, so, I mean, I do depart... I mean, I part company a little bit, I think, with, with Michael Sandel and some of the others, because, I mean, my emphasis, as, as I was saying earlier, is, is not so much on the meritocracy, or at least, I mean, partly on the meritocracy, but, but almost as much, if not more, on the prefix cognitive that, that in some ways the logic of my position is that we actually need more meritocracy, but in these other 
clusters. And, and of course, one of the reasons why cognitive meritocracy has swept all before is that it seems to be fair and easy to measure. You know, we all sit down, we read the same biology textbook, we, we all complete the same biology exam, and then and then that produces a hierarchy. Some people are very good at biology and they answer the exam questions correctly, you know, going all the way down the scale. Um, that seems fair. And the, but it's very, very much harder to do that in a lot of manual technical craft occupations. It's very much harder still to do it. It's very difficult to measure care. It's very, very difficult to measure. You know, how, how do you measure the work of a nurse on a geriatric ward in a hospital? She spends her eight or usually as a she, uh, eight or 10 hour shift, look, you know, making the lives of 30 or 40 uh, very old people slightly less miserable. This is, I mean, you, you can have, you can have um, you know, customer surveys and things in hospitals, but uh, these are, it's very difficult to measure the output of, uh, of, of people working in the care sector uh, outside of certain limited areas. And, and actually, this is something we should give more thought to. So some of the logic of what I'm saying in, is, is that actually we should, we should reward uh, people in the, in the heart economy in a more differentiated way, but both we should reward them both more, but also more differentiated in in the heart in the care economy. I mean, so, sorry, just to, finally on this point. I mean, my there is an element of common sense that seems to be lacking in some of the meritocracy critique. I mean, if I can put it like this, I mean, we all we all believe, even Michael Young believed, that it makes sense to have meritocratic selection for jobs, particularly top jobs. None of us. To take a silly example, perhaps none of us want to be operated on by someone who's failed their surgery exams. <laughs> none of us want the the head of the I don't know nuclear research function in our society to be chosen by lottery. You know, we want our best nuclear physicists to be running the nuclear research program. Obviously, so if we accept meritocratic selection for top jobs, then uh, but we don't accept a meritocratic society. This will seem to a lot of people, like a pretty fine distinction. I actually think it is a real distinction. I mean, indeed, it's a bit comparable to the... Do you remember Lionel Jospin talked mm-hmm. about being in favour of a market economy but not a market society? I think it's rather comparable to that. It makes sense, obviously, to have meritocratic selection for jobs, but that doesn't. You know, but we do not want... I mean, a, a meritocratic society is a very impoverished ideal for a modern society. So, I mean, David, this this is like this conversation is putting could potentially put us in so many directions. There's actually one, one thing I was thinking about when you when when you were talking about the you know measuring success. This great book by Jerry Muller, The Tyranny of Metrics, in which basically he explains that we've been completely enslaved by by metrics and that metrics are good, but they're, they they can't measure everything. And I think. Uh, uh, when it comes to to, to things like care, it, it, we are really uh, uh, in the middle of this. There's also, you know, another another thing that you know we won't have time to dis- discuss. Uh, but that, that's the, the the fact that we are producing too many elites that that the elites can swallow, and 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 this actually is starting to to become obvious. And 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 maybe the revolutionary mood that we see in some sectors of society, the rise of the of, of the revolutionary left, has something to do with it. And well, yeah, yeah. Let, 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 let me just. I mean, something I meant to say earlier but i mean i mean to put this sort of pithily it turns out the knowledge economy doesn't need very many knowledge workers uh-huh. I mean, you know, this, this is part of what kind of ai is about but we're already you know like i say even before ai we're seeing the signs of this sort of 
fatigue, if you like, uh, when, when it comes to the economy's ability to, to produce lots of highly paid cognitive type jobs. We're seeing it in the figures for graduate income premiums declining. Again, particularly uh, a lot of these arguments uh, are focused particularly strongly on the US and the UK, but they apply to many other countries too. The obvious parallel is the French Revolution. When you get a uh, potential, yeah, yeah. then you are, you are in a pre-revolutionary situation, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that, you know, because, uh, you know, the middle and lower ranks of the cognitive class, you know, who are kind of routine, they're doing routine administrative jobs that they feel that they're overqualified for, they're, they're on 20 grand a year or whatever, they're feeling pretty hard done by, they're not getting on the property ladder. These, I mean, they're, they're still pretty comfortably off, you know, and they sit all day and and play on their iPhone. I mean, they're not hungry, <laughs> um, but but they do feel uh, disappointed, disappointed in the status that they're not receiving. Uh, and indeed, many of them are doing. You know, a third of graduates are in non-graduate employment five to ten years after graduating in the UK. Um, you know, all all of these are, are telling us that. I mean, and actually, I was looking at the figures just on the sort of social class figures for the UK, and the number of people, the proportion of people who are in the top. Top two social classes, essentially the higher and lower manager and professional class. It was as as recently as two thousand. The proportion of people in those two classes was thirty five percent of the adult UK population, rather perhaps surprisingly high. I looked at the figures for this year, and it's thirty seven percent. So it's essentially been static for the last twenty years, and yet you know we're still as to repeat. So much of our public policy is based on the false assumption of this class growing and growing and growing. Ladies and gentlemen, David Goodhart. David, I had, I think I had three other questions that I don't have time to ask you now because we've basically run out of time. And oh, Sorry about that. <laughs> but, you know, th- this gives me another opportunity to invite you. I don't know if it will be next year or before, but uh, 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 thank you. Thank you so much, David, for taking part in this show. Uh, this was an absolutely fantastic conversation. And if you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it, please then you should definitely go to your favorite bookstore or virtually these days to get a copy of Head and Heart. David is also the author of two other books, which are definitely worth reading. The British Dream, uh, which is about immigration. And I think there's also a link with the care workers here. So, I mean, again, a conversation that we should have next time. And of course, The Road to Somewhere, which was the subject of first podcast of season one. David Goodhart now is also on Twitter. So you should also check out his account and follow his work. And he's tweeting at, at David underscore Goodhart. And of course, while you are browsing the web, do visit IRI's website at iri.org to check out what we do to promote democracy around the world and steer the debate in the transatlantic space and beyond. This is the end of this first episode of the year of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Stanislava Stahova, Hannah Mod, and Sam Johannes, as always, for producing this great series. We are going to be back in two weeks with an episode on Joe Biden's U.S. foreign policy priorities with Damon Wilson, the executive vice president of the Atlantic Council. And thanks a lot for following us and talk to you soon.